Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough neck. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. And fuck the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck all the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment says you cannot be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. In my lifetime, and I'm going to be very direct here, and I'm probably going to make a lot of enemies, but I've never seen a more insidious, inane, exploitive 
and cool plan put forth to the American public. In San Francisco, you're asking non-slave owners to pay people who were never slaves $5 million per black guy in San Francisco. The average household is going to have to pay $600,000 if the $5 million is paid out. That's just for San Francisco and has nothing to do with that. That's not counting the the $97,000 every year for the rest of their life. That's not counting the free education. That's not counting forgiveness of all debts. That's not counting the right for them to buy a house in San Francisco for a dollar. It's a joke. My guest today is Tony Hall, former supervisor with San Francisco County. Today he'll explain what California and San Francisco's repression plans entail and why he thinks it is not likely to happen. So all this malarkey about, well, 65% of Californians are for it and 90% of black people are for reparations. No, 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 no. That's not true. From what you're saying, do you think that they're not going to pay this? I'm Siamai Karami. Welcome to California Insider. Tony, it's great to have you back on. Welcome back again. Siamai, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And... Uh, Again, thanks for having me on the show, and more importantly, thanks for all you're doing to inform Californians. Thank you, uh, Tony. The important things. Thank you. We want to talk to you about an important topic: reparations. And you know, we had the reparation task force. There's been they've been working in the last two years to come up with a plan. Can you explain to us what is reparations first, and then what the task well, force? Well, I do? think people have to understand what reparations are. Reparations are payments or benefits forwarded to a specific group of people in a society for perceived or real wrongdoings in the past. The reparations that we're talking about today are after the George Floyd riots, Governor Newsom with some of the assemblymen and legislators appointed a nine-member task force to study reparations and come up with uh, suggestions on how to uh, address the wrongdoings or the alleged wrongdoings against them in the form of discrimination. At the same time, San Francisco, there's two different things happening. At San Francisco Board of Supervisors, never to be left out in the cold and always wanting to be ahead of the curb, the mayor and the board established a reparations committee up there. So we have two different groups in California with different approaches. You have the San Francisco Task Force and you have the California Task Force. And on top of those, you have advisory committees. The California Committee submitted to the governor their report. After two and a half years of meetings and studies, they submitted their report. It's changed over the last six months, and I can go into how it's changed and why it's changed. They were not really stuck on a number to pay out like they have been in the past. In the past, they've been talking about paying out services, benefits, atonement for uh, every black person that could trace their lineage to a slave or somebody who was a descendant of a black person, a free black person before 1900. Well, as you know, California never had a history of slavery. We became a state in 1850. There's 13 different categories they're looking at. The California Task Force is looking at housing, crime, over-policing, the war on drugs. Too many of them were arrested, they claim. They had their businesses taken away. In most cases, businesses, I've read the report as much as I could, as much as they'll release. 
businesses that didn't exist. They're claiming that a lot of businesses would have existed had there not been discrimination. So it's kind of nebulous up in the air. There is about 115 recommendations for atonement over 13 different categories. They were saying that each black person in California, two and a half million of them, should get the equivalent of about $1.4 million. That can tie their lineage to a black slave person, okay. or a free black person before 1900. Very hard to do, by the way. I don't know how that's going to happen, but they have an idea that they can figure that out. And God bless them if they can. Yesterday they came out and said it's not about black. It's uh, called lineage. But what they're limiting their study to is black only. So it's about blacks. Okay, it's about African Americans. Let's not kid ourselves here. Let's, let's call it for what it is or we're not going to ever get anywhere. That's California. Um, Sam, now, let me, before I finish with California, if we're looking at the numbers, our California budget is listed at about 300 to $330 billion a year. If we were to pay out... 1.4 or even a million. Let's let's use the figure a million to 2.5 blacks, for they can identify themselves in the proper category. We're looking at anywhere between a, a minimum of 400 billion to probably 600 billion, but maybe as high as 800 billion. So we're looking at something that is potentially twice as big as the budget of California. So what happens if we're forced to pay that out? in the first year. Do away with California. <laughs> You're doing away with the goose that lays the golden egg. It's gone. There will be no more California. There will be no more money left to pay anything. Services, roads, uh, policing, nothing. San Francisco. Let's go to San Francisco. San Francisco's Reparations Committee, the Board of Supervisors studying it, calls for paying, and I'm just going through some of them, five million dollars per person, per black person in San Francisco. Yeah. There's about 43,000 to 45,000 that we know. Let's say 35,000 of them are 18 years or older. So we're going to pay out the first year about $175 billion. They also want $97,000 a year for each one of the black people under reparations for the next 250 years. They want all credit eliminated. They want their own educational system. They want the money raised to go into a reparations oversight committee, not, not the government of San Francisco, not City Hall. So this is a lot of unrealistic, pie-in-the-sky promises. And I'll get to why this is happening in a minute. But it's stuff that could never happen. And these people on these task committees know that. That's why yesterday they did not put a dollar figure on the reparations report to the governor. But let's get back to the reparations itself. In my lifetime, and I'm going to be very direct here, and I'm probably going to make a lot of enemies, but I've never seen a more insidious, inane, exploitive, and cool plan put forth to the American public and my heart goes out to the blacks who are being misled. There's no way in the world that you could pay the reparations they're asking for and keep this country to intact. Why do I say that? 
if I'm getting off track here, inter interject. Ask me the question, CMAC, because you're very good at because that. Because the thinking of actually um, wanting to do something for the black community is a good thinking, right? When I think about it, like the people that care about the black community, they want to do something for them. Let, let me be very clear here. I'm not denying, and no one in their right mind can deny that there's been discrimination against the black man, that there's been discrimination against the red man, the American Indian, there's been discrimination against the brown man, the American Mexican, there's been discrimination against the yellow man, the Asian, there's been discrimination against the green man, the Irishman, who was a slave before the black guys. They don't think of that. The Irish were indentured servants before the blacks were in the West Indies. They were stripped of their own country, sent the slaves to the West Indies, and eventually a lot of them found their way here and made their fortune. So we owe a lot of reparations to a lot of different people. But the point I'm trying to make CMAC, and we can talk about the details of reparations forever. This country was founded on the principle that all men are created equal, that there shall be no discrimination on race, color, creed, or ethnicity. That's what the United States was founded on. That's what in our Constitution, and it's in our state charter. So what they're proposing is illegal. Also, I want to bring up the fact that in both plans, both the state and the San Francisco plan, there is measures in there to eliminate, to abolish any laws that ban discrimination. Why? And both, both, they don't talk about that, but in both plans there are measures to abolish laws against discrimination. Why? Because they need that to happen in order for a plan like this to exist because it discriminates. But I want to go one step further. It's not discrimination. It's exploitation. We are exploiting the black man. Not we. The people pushing this are exploiting the black population. How? There's a lot of people in this country that think we've already paid our reparations. How many hundreds of thousands of people died in the Civil War, white men? black men, brown men, everybody, to free the slaves. In the last 50 years, how many handout programs, welfare, affirmative action plans have been geared just to the black community? Were those not reparations? The taxpayer picking up the bills for riots that they themselves started initiated. What about those? Are those not reparations? So a lot of people feel that we've already paid reparations. And I'm not saying I'm one of them, I'm not. I'm just saying that's the way a lot of people feel. I interviewed a lot of black people in preparation for this show. Most of the people I talked to, I'd say 75% of them said this is a joke. And you know what stuck in my mind? Several of them said, if the white man thinks that I need his money to compete, he's wrong. Two or three of them said, hey, if the white guy... They always say the white guy, but there's a lot of other people. Want to give us, the, are dumb enough to give us the money? I'm smart enough to take it. Now that, any ethnic group would do. And a lot of them said, you know what, I'm against it. I don't need the white man's dollar. We were enslaved long enough. We had the masta under the slave owner. Now the new master is going to be the American dollar. I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't want to be enslaved again. That's what I heard from the black community. No thanks. 
So all this malarkey about, well, 65% of Californians are for it and 90% of black people are for reparations, no, 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 no. That's not true. The average American and the black understands it just like anybody else. This country was founded on the principle, give us your masses, give us your downtrodden. From this point on, regardless of race, color, creed, or ethnicity, you're going to be treated equal in America. And this is the only country in the world that's done that, that's created a melting pot of the downtrodden from all over the world, and many, many, many of them have been successful because they wanted to be. So this country was found, it wasn't founded on the principle, give us your downtrodden, we're going to pay you later on reparations, because you'd have to pay reparations to everybody. That's the end of the country. This is what America is. Come here, do well, study hard, work hard, be successful. We don't care what your color is. I grew up in a black neighborhood. I grew up in a neighborhood. We appreciated people's differences. We didn't discriminate against their differences. We appreciated them. That's why I looked, uh, when I went to San Francisco, there were so many different ethnic groups and neighborhoods and everything that appreciated each other's differences. You know, and there's, there's discrimination is a word that's very misused. Human nature discriminates. Italians want to live with Italians in North Beach. Chinese want to live with Chinese in Chinatown. Blacks want to live with blacks in Butchertown and Hunters Point. The Irish want to live with the Irish out in the sunset. The Mexicans like the mission. They like their food. They like their culture. Not wrong to discriminate. That's a sign of freedom. Discrimination isn't the case. It's discrimination is bad when you discriminate against someone because of the color of their skin. Yes, we have done that in a lot of cases to the black man, but we've done that since time began on almost everybody. We're not paying reparations. That, that is going to destroy one of the fundamental blocks of America. This episode is sponsored by Midas Gold Group. Saudi Arabia has said they are open to accepting currencies for oil other than the dollar. Kissinger set up a petrol business agreement with the Saudis in the 1970s, enshrining the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. This could be shattered. The grave consequences would be felt by every American. The Fed and politicians have abused the management of our monetary and fiscal policy. They have thrown an anchor on Americans with over $200 trillion in debt. That includes old entitlement. We also have the BRICS countries forming an alliance to control commodities we need. Would they give them up for devalued dollars? Will they back their currencies with commodities while we back with nothing? Is this the de-dollarization by many countries in the world that could destroy our currency? Now is no time to play games with your portfolio, which aside from your house is paper. Better trade some of that in for precious metals at veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. Call 855-322-GOLD. That's 855-322-4653. There's still time to get a gold IRA from the number one veteran-owned gold IRA dealer in the country. Midas Gold Group, your vault of confidence. So, Tony, what, from what you're saying, do you think that they're not going to pay this? this is from what I'm saying, CMAC, I know they can't pay. You know they can't pay. There's not a thinking person in this world that knows they can't pay. The money's not there. 
You want to destroy uh, the United States? Yeah, um, That's the quickest way to do it. The impact of this latest form of playing the race card, reparations, is going to be so brutal for the average black person because they're not as politically attuned like the white people or everybody else. People are not into the details. That's why we're talking about it. That's what this show is. Because they for. think they're going to get paid. They right? people are going to get paid. Count oh, on oh, it. Boy, I'm going to get a million dollars, or I'm yeah. going to get a hundred thousand, or a year, or I'm going to get a job for the rest of my life. They're not. It's not going to happen, boys. Not going to happen. So wake up. Don't be exploited. Allow yourself to be fooled again. It's not going to happen. Now, what's going to happen in society? A lot of these people are going to be very upset. And they're going to go out and they're going to ride it. And again, the taxpayer, be they white, black, or whatever, are going to have to pick up the bill. Now, the people that are behind this thing know they have to preserve that black voting block, so let's promise them anything. We know we can't deliver it. We know that. They know that. And they pay it over time? Let's no. say that There's not enough money. You, you pay that over time. What are you going to pay? All the other, how are you going to satisfy all the other important things in society that need to be done. There's Do you think other money. groups will come forward or you get upset oh, over it? without a doubt. Without a doubt. We owe the Mexican. We took his land. We owe the Chinese that built the railroads. I, I went all over that. We owe almost every race you can think of. You cannot... The United States didn't say, give me your masses, I'm going to pay them. From this point on, we're giving you opportunity. We're giving you an opportunity to be treated as an equal man in every aspect. Do the best you can with it. That's what the United States is about. If these people want to tear it apart with something as silly as reparations, they're going to destroy this country. And I, 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 that's not going to happen because there isn't enough money there. And they know that. These committees know that. Now, you ask me what's going to happen. A lot of... The poor black people are being misled. They're being misguided. They're going to they're gonna revolt. They're going to be upset. But they're going to be kept together as a block. The next thing will come along will promise, you know, 40 acres and a mule, <laughs> like we used to during the Civil War. It's a dream. It's not going to happen. What we got to do as a group of people of all colors is make sure that the past discrimination that did happen never happens again. That's what we got to do. That's the hope we got to give them. We don't need to give them any more false promises. We got to give them the hope and provide them with as much education within fiscal limits as we can. We have to support those people that are downtrodden and discriminated against, and we have to eliminate exploitation. When I was in Oakland, I, I sensed that there was a lot of tension between black people and white people. Do you think California has become more um, divided on race? Without a doubt. Absolutely yes. And we have spent tons of money to hope it doesn't. We're putting money in the wrong programs. We're doing this the wrong way. Instead of educating people, and insisting that people look at the details of programs and trying to help them out by raising them up by their own bootstraps. 
we're giving them money to be quiet. We're doing this. Give money, money, money. The race relations has never been so bad in this country as it is today. Never been so bad. I want to offer one, one observation that's interesting. <laughs> one of the black guys I know said, Hall, I'm going to tell you something. There's as many black millionaires per capita in the black community as the white community. And he had all kinds of stats and figures. He was right. He said there's as many black millionaires that own luxury homes per capita as there is white, maybe more. The perceived discrimination has been used as a tool to organize a voting bloc. That's all it is. So that's not what the United States is about. Do you think the race relations is worse than when you were growing up, or do you think things have gotten better? When you were growing up, was it, was it like that, where people would think, oh, people of color? Because now we are hearing that a lot more. You know, when I grew, up, I grew up in an area that there was, it was a melting pot. There was there, and we never saw color. First time I experienced color was in my neighborhood when so-called community organizers came in and said, hey, we're going to have a riot here in a couple of weeks. Watch your backside. Watch riots. In my neighborhood, that's where I grew up. So I didn't know what the hell color was. The black guy didn't know what color. We were all living, we were all living, trying to make a living, trying to raise families, trying to play ball, trying to do what we could, get a scholarship to college, you know. You had gangs, you had this and that, but that was petty ante compared to what it is now. Now, people really don't want to like each other because of the color of their skin. Something as stupid as the color of skin has got people arguing because they've been told, they've been misguided, they've been told this, you've been discriminated against. You've been this, you've been that. Everybody has. Everybody has. This particular reparations thing is so ridiculous, it's going to cause more bad race relationships. To ask a non-slave owner in San Francisco, the average household is going to have to pay $600,000 if the $5 million is paid out. So you're asking non-slave owners to pay people who were never slaves $5 million per black guy in San Francisco, and each guy give up 600000 which he hasn't got, his household income, he hasn't got it. That's what it's going to take. Each household, each taxpayer in San Francisco is going to have to add $600,000. It's not going to happen. So, boys, stop it. Stop misleading people. Just, that's just for San Francisco and has nothing million. to do with it. That's not counting the, the $97,000 every year for the rest of their life. That's not counting the free education. That's not counting forgiveness of all debts. That's not counting the right for them to buy a house in San Francisco for a dollar. That's also included in the San Francisco race reparations package. It's a joke. And it's so unfair to the black man. Because probably a lot of people believe that this is going to happen, no, right? The, the, I don't. The <laughs> black community is probably... Well, I mean, yeah, just like in any community, you know, they hear this stuff, hey, I'm in for reparations. I, mean, I guarantee you, I know guys that are saying, hey, I must have some connection to a slave. Uh, I know one guy, he's 20% black, he says, I got, I'm going to research my background. It's not going to happen, CMAC. Number one, it's illegal in both the state and federally. So they've got to climb that, that little battle. The Supreme Court just came out and said, affirmative action is dead, as it should be. 
as it should be. Nobody should be given a leg up over another person because of the color of their skin. Because of the color of their skin, given a leg up. Not discriminated against. That's got to go. We don't want any more discrimination on color. But no one should be given preferential treatment because of the color of their skin. That's reverse discrimination. That's exploitation. Now, Tony, uh, to, to get things back to normal between these different races, because I feel like there's a lot of tensions, and there's this thinking, okay, this person is brown, I need to talk to them this way. This person is Asian, I need to talk to them that way. This person is black, this person is white. Um, to get rid of that, and going back to... You have to have people talk the truth. Tell the truth. You cannot promise something you can't deliver. I will not mislead people. I never have been, I never will. That's, that's wrong. That's lying to people. So when someone says, I'm going to give you $5 million, or I'm going to give you 13000 a year for every year you've lived in California since 1970, that's hogwash. That can be attained, but not the full package. You know, you can pay out. I suspect the state reparations de-emphasize the number because Gavin Newsom's running for president. He doesn't want to be stuck with a number. He's going to keep this reparations thing going as long as he can to keep the black voting block together. But he's going to drop it. He can't do it. He knows it. And it doesn't translate well nationwide. So that's going nowhere. What has to be done is we have to get back to the way we were. You respect people's differences, not their similarities. Well, I'm against you because you don't think like I do. Let's respect each other's differences. Let's, we're all in this thing together. Let's try to make the best of it while we can. Let's reach out to each other and say, hey, man, you need a helping hand. I'm going to help you. But I can't help you and take it away from Peter over here or Peter or Kelly or whatever the hell his name is. can't do that because it's not fair. To deliver on reparations that they're asking for, you've got to take away from another group of people. That's unfair. That's creating more racial disharmony and more racial strife. And that's it might make those groups mad. Of course it's going to. Then we're going to have riots all over the place. And, and I, listen, the worst type of, of crime in the world is exploitation. Discrimination, man has been discriminating against whatever food since he was created. Exploitation, exploiting a group because of the color of their skin or because of their, you're promising something or because of false promises. No, that's wrong. That's sinful. And you can't do that. You just, you, you destroy what America's all about. You can do it in a dictatorship. You can do it in a socialist regime. You can do it in a communist regime. You know, but you can't do it in a free enterprise, democratic republic. It doesn't work. It destroys it. So you mentioned the reparation plans for San Francisco, but has San Francisco tried to do reparations in the past? Well, if, if you define reparations as special privileges, special reaching out for one group of people, yes, I was part of that. I was in control of that program for the Civil Service Commission. We made a, a, a concerted effort to recruit and attract blacks to go into civil service positions that they could qualify for, that they took a test for. I don't know how many muni drivers I put on there in the city. Uh, yeah, that was affirmative action. And 
Was did it help? Yeah, the city needed at that time more blacks in civil in civil service, so we went out and we recruited them. Uh, it wasn't giving them anything; it was giving them the opportunity for a job. And some of them made good at it. A lot of them made good at it. You have to create the opportunity for people that, but you don't give it to them. No strings attached. They had to work. I was giving them a job. It's called work. You know, rather than sitting on the street doing nothing. Hey, guys, here's a job, but you got to work. And a lot of people took advantage of it. So we were fortunate in that way. Uh, there has been affirmative action programs designed for the black community in San Francisco. A lot of that started under Mayor Aliotto, and it went uh, bigger and bigger and bigger with each consecutive mayor. Uh, but a lot of those programs weren't just giveaway programs. A lot of them were. They were abused. The programs were abused. The war on poverty. Uh, the they were programs that were affirmative action. Was there good that came out of it? Yeah. Some people got their jobs and did very well. Was a lot of times they wasted that opportunity. But I'm not going to go back and propose that we pay them for that lost opportunity, and that's what reparations is. Oh, we want to be paid for businesses that never were. We want to be paid for the houses that we never got and that we never paid for. We want to be paid for the time we spent in jail, even though we might have committed the crime. Maybe we did, maybe we did, but we want to be paid for that time. That's what reparations is saying. Read the report, folks. So for those people that are involved in these task forces, and they're kind of at the forefront of this, that might think that this is going to get paid or go through, what, what do you recommend to them? Start thinking about You're going to destroy the goose that lays a golden egg, and, and what are you going to have then? Stop fooling your own people. Stop it. Right now. That is not going to lead to racial harmony. Only love, education, and really caring about your fellow man are going to heal this thing. This is the wrong this is the wrong approach. I'm sorry. That's that's my feeling on it. It's not just my feeling, it's the feeling of almost every black I've talked with. They know they're being exploited. They don't need the white man's money to prove they can compete. They'll take it. You want to give it to them if you're that dumb, but they don't need it. These guys can compete in any aspect you want, most of them. The ones that are educated, go to school, that want to learn, that want to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, hey, they can handle themselves. They're good people. We have to appreciate them for their differences. That's what it's all about. Now, did you, when you were talking to your black friends, were they telling you what would what do they really need in the black community today well the, most of my my black friends in San Francisco are from San Francisco they grew up there you know uh, a lot of them some of them you know have only been there a generation or two but most of them know what the city was they know that did they feel any discrimination is that well, sure, everybody felt discrimination. Everybody feels discrimination. Of course they did. But they're willing to overlook that and move on with their life. I know a lot of black musicians that are fabulous musicians because they've made music their thing, and they're out there expressing themselves, and they're making a living at it. Uh, I'm a singer. I've been a singer. I've been, you know, I've worked with black bands, and they don't need reparations to help them out. 
They know what San Francisco's all about. It was a harmonious town. It can return to that. But you can't have certain people calling for this amount of money going into this particular group because you're taken away from this group. It's just human nature. We're limited on our resources. So people have to do it themselves. It's too bad. I feel bad about what happened to a lot of different... I feel really bad about the American Indian. I feel bad about the, the Mexican. I feel bad about everybody because things happen to people that shouldn't have. But there's nothing that Tony Hall or anybody else can do about the past except try to not make it happen again in the future. So if you were um, in a position to to talk with this separation task force and these people to, to what to talk with them yeah and and um, recommend some ideas for them they've got tasked with putting this together should they do any tax credits should they do any other things what what that's are you discriminatory that's discriminatory we don't know this guy this color so didn't pay taxes or only pays this that's discriminatory can't do that my advice to these people is look Everybody, every race you can think of has been discriminated against or hurt by other races over the, the life of mankind. Get over it. You've got a great country here that is reaching over backwards to provide you with an education, with, to provide you not only with an education, with a, the means to express to other fellow men the goodness in your heart. That's where you got to go. You've got to you have to open the door so that these people can be kind to each other, and they have to know why they're being kind. Praise them when they're doing well. It's not about money. It's not about money. Money is going to destroy them. Do you think if they would have focused more on the values and ethics and culture? Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. If you focus more on what America is all about, what value do you you have here what are the benefits of this country as opposed to other countries uh, where there's dictators and whatnot if they concentrate on just what you said that's a big step in the right direction we have to teach not only the black person all races that that come here we have an influx of people coming in like mad they have to be taught hey you're in America now you can make you can do well here but you've got to learn to respect your fellow man, regardless of where he's coming from, regardless of his color. You have to learn to protect him, and better yet, hopefully love him. Hopefully help him out when he needs a hand. Tony, from what it sounds like, it seems like that there is this task force. They have actually made recommendations, but it might not be real. And people, some people might get hurt as a result of it. If it becomes real, then people might not be realistic. Some people, other people might get hurt. If it becomes not real, a group of people will get hurt. Um, if you were to recommend something to the task force, or if you were in charge of it, how would you deal with it? Well, first of all, if I was the governor or the mayor and I appointed the task force, I would appoint people from all walks of life because people from all walks of life live in our society. I wouldn't appoint just people from one ethnic group. Secondly, I would say, gentlemen, ladies, whoever, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you guys to engage in a study that comes up with solutions based on reality, solutions on how to improve things, 
not about how to make up for the sins of the past. How do we improve things going forward? Because this is America, and I want to preserve that fundamental thing of equity for all people. So I want you people to work on it and come back with me with how do we make mankind, how do we make up to the past by doing things in the future that eliminate what we did wrong in the past. I want real solutions, not based on money, because money is a cheap thing. I want real solutions on everyday problems that all of us can live with, and you're all being chosen because you represent society, not just one group. I would appoint people that are compassionate, people that are intelligent enough to understand what we're facing, and people that can make recommendations that actually mean something. That's what I would do. I would not appoint 24 people, one of which is a non-black, and they're all coming from the same political spectrum. Uh, that's what I would do, and I would get results because it, it's 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 all about honesty, compassion, tolerance. We have to tolerate each other. We're not going to be lost for this world. We're going to eat each other up. We have to be honest with each other. We have to have compassion for each other, but we have to appreciate our differences. We have to, we've had enough of this. I, I, I only appreciate what I'm familiar with, what I'm similar to. That's got to go. That's, that's of the past. So that's what I would do. See, and that gets just common sense. Tony Hall, former county supervisor in San Francisco. It was great to have you on California Insider. I just want to say, CMAC, thank you. Uh, you're the only guy I know, the only media outlet that is trying to educate the people out there. You are really living up to your beliefs. And most media outfits are all about money, are all about one way of thought. You're down the middle. You're, you're, you're doing a great job in California, and I, I hope for your sake and for the sake of Californians that they that they listen to your program because you're doing a great job and thank you thank you sorry I appreciate it thank you if you like the show and our content you should go to insiderca.com and sign up to our newsletter because we never know what can happen with social media and other platforms in terms of distributing our content if you like to come on the show and be an insider you can reach out to us at CAinsider at epochtimesca.com. Again, it's CAinsider at epochtimesca.com. We'd love to have you on the show to tell us what's going on in your field in California. Thank you for watching. Hey, thanks for joining us tonight. We are also continuing to celebrate Pride Month later in the show. We're introducing you to Sasha Eastley. She underwent the first known gender affirmation surgery in China. So tonight, we are sharing her journey in the military, her transition, and also how she found love. But first, let's get to the news of the day. First up, the state legislature might have just passed a budget deal, but their work far from over. Many bills are still being debated, like one that pays some jurors $100 a day for jury duty. Also, gun control and environmental issues are big topics that we're keeping a watch on. And tomorrow, reparations will take the center stage in the capital city. Our Becca Habegger joins us to explain in tonight's main point. Becca. Alex, in just hours, the California Reparations Task Force plans to release its 
final report. Now, we've been following the story since 2020, back when the state legislature passed the law forming the task force. And tomorrow, members will make their final recommendations public. The nine members of the California Reparations Task Force have been studying slavery and its lasting impact on the lives of black Americans, covering topics ranging from housing discrimination and employment and wage gaps to the legal system and education. There have been things that have gone on in America that have stifled, impeded, or stopped African Americans from really realizing our full potential. The task force is recommending reparations be limited to descendants of enslaved or free black people who were in the country by the end of the 1800s. They say reparations should include cash or its equivalent for eligible residents. Capital, money, reparations. That will stimulate this economy for the 2.6 million blacks in California. The task force also approved a formal apology they believe the state should provide for past discriminatory policies, like the state has done for other marginalized groups. The question becomes, if you did all that labor for all these years, your ancestors, how would you feel? There are going to be people who say California was admitted into the union as a free state, so why should California taxpayers be on the hook for reparations? Because they benefited from California being complicit with the slave states. As for next steps, the legislature would need to pass a bill to authorize payments, which has not yet happened. And Governor Newsom has said he looks forward to reviewing the final report and recommendations. You know, this is a really historic moment, Alex. California is the first state in the nation to form a statewide reparations task force. And they say the final report they're releasing tomorrow will be the most comprehensive look at the black experience in America since the Kerner Commission report of 1968. What came from that report? You know, the Kerner Commission report concluded, quote, our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. That was 55 years ago, and members of the California Reparations Task Force say the words remain sadly relevant today. All right, Becca, thank you so much. And if you do want to attend that final meeting, it starts at 9 a.m. at the Secretary of State building in downtown. The address is right on your screen. Again, this is open to the public, and, of course, we will be there. Here's what else we're talking about today. Gas prices are about to get higher. Another gas tax increase that takes effect on July 1st. A gallon of gas will go up three cents, bringing the total gas tax to about 58 cents a gallon. The Sacramento City Unified School Board just announced that they are looking for a new superintendent. Current superintendent Jorge Aguilar will step down at the end of this month. He led the district for six years, three of those during a pandemic. Aguilar says that he's grateful to the community for the respectful interactions that he experienced. And break-in after break-in have a Stockton family, I mean, completely fed up. They opened their kitchen space and restaurant this January after owning a catering business. And since then, they have been broken into six times. On Monday night, thieves broke the lock on the back door and stole a speaker and a DoorDash tablet. It's fear, probably, right? When you walk in, you don't know what you're going to walk in through. Um, I think the front was... The front, having the windows shattered and just seeing that glass all over the floor was, like, disheartening. We'll have more on these break-ins and what's being done about them coming up tonight at 11. Fireworks went on sale today in the areas that allow them. If you are buying them, make sure you are going to the stands with the safe and sane steel. These explosives cause concerns, especially for firefighters. Our Bridget Biorlo shows us why. 
Colorful displays like these are part of an American tradition to celebrate Independence Day, but they're also responsible for what Sacramento firefighters say is their busiest week of the year. We look at the week of Fourth of July as almost a Super Bowl for the fire department. Uh, we are very busy already, and then you couple that with uh, people using uh, fireworks. On a normal day, Metro Fire responds to about 250 to 300 incidents, but on the 4th of July, crews say their call volume nearly triples. It's why experts are advising the public to celebrate the holiday safely. Illegal fireworks in California are unacceptable and we have a zero tolerance towards them. If you plan on setting off a firework this Independence Day, make sure they're the safe and sane legal kind in the state of California. You can tell by checking for this seal by the state fire marshal. This is an example of a fire display that is legal to purchase and use in the Golden State. As you can see, it doesn't leave the ground, but Metro Captain Parker Wilborn says you still need to make sure you're using them properly and lighting them away from anything that can catch fire. When we go to these nuisance fires, a lot of times those resources are then drained from uh, 911 emergencies and these are preventable. So as you plan your celebrations, make sure to keep safety top of mind. Oh yeah, very important. If you are using fireworks, make sure you soak the displays in water for about 24 hours. People caught with illegal fireworks can face hundreds of dollars in fines. After the break, our historic winter is still causing problems across the state. Why some are now calling this California's newest lake. We still have a flood watch in effect for parts of the Sierra as well as excessive heat building throughout the valley when we're expecting the peak heat. Later in the show, we introduce you to this woman, Sasha Eastley, who received the first known gender affirmation surgery in China. She had concerns about the death penalty, but was willing to face the consequences. If someone find out, I'd probably get a death penalty. She now calls Sacramento home. Tonight, debris of that submersible recovered from the ocean floor is back on land. The U.S. Coast Guard says it's likely recovered human remains from the wreckage. Evidence is on its way back to the United States, and the sub imploded last week, killing all five people on board. And check this out. New drone video really shows the impact of our historic winter. Valuable agriculture in the Central Valley is still underwater. Chicken, dairy, and produce farms in this area of Tulare County are evacuated. Law enforcement says they expect this new so-called lake to be here for at least a year or more. And a record amount of snowfall fell in the mountains this past winter. It's now melting. It's all coming down the hill. And Monica, things are about to get even hotter this weekend. Right. So we have multiple watches and warnings that are out. Heat advisory in place from the coast all the way into the valley. Highs will be between 95 and 105 degrees as we dig deeper into the valley, and especially on the east side, it's an excessive heat warning. Major heat risk of potential. We still have that flood watch as well for the central Sierra. Accelerated snow melt is going to happen with the heat, and that will continue through next Tuesday, the 4th of July. The other key factor here is we're still looking at multiple areas of thunderstorms starting to quiet down just a little bit for tonight, but all of that starts to quiet down under this ridge of high pressure. It's a lot of stable air, but that sinking warming air gets us into the 100s today, still topping out in the 80s and low 90s in the valley, 80s for the foothills and 70s for the Sierra. But again, the heat will be building with the 
peak hitting us on Saturday. It's going to be major heat risk. Anyone without effective cooling or access to proper hydration could be majorly affected by this. Little relief coming on Sunday, bigger relief for the middle of next week. So a couple of changing routine options here. Look before you lock. Don't want to leave anybody in vehicles. Hydrate and shade. Sunscreen and activities should be used and activities in the morning because you can see those temperatures are in the 60s. By the time we get to the noontime hour, we're in the 80s. Finally, reaching the 100s by the afternoon between about 4 and 6 o'clock. You can see in the Sierra, morning lows are in the 40s along the coast. We're staying with highs in the 60s. Morning lows in the valley in the 50s, but afternoon highs close to 100. Less thunderstorm action for the Sierra. Highs in the 100s for the foothills, and we'll see multiple days with 100s for the valley. Cooler for the 4th of July. Coming up, meet the first known transgender woman to have gender affirmation surgery in China, now called Sacramento Home. So this Pride Month, we continue to celebrate and highlight individuals of the LGBTQ plus community. And tonight, photojournalist Rachel Kim has a story of Sasha Eastley, who underwent the first known gender affirmation surgery in China. She now calls Sacramento's pocket neighborhood home. When I was young, I thought I had a girl's soul trapped in a boy's shell. I'm Sasha Isley. I've been living in Sacramento since 2005. And people told me I'm China's first transgender. I was born in northern part of China, Dalian, 1962. I always pick up my sister's clothing. Since I was three, I know I'm a girl. When I was high school, I told my parents I wanted to be a girl. I know about the gender affirmation surgery when I was 16. I met a boy in a hospital in Changsha. He was my first boyfriend. He told me after the medical school and he's gonna do the surgery for me and then marry me. The Chinese invasion there has supposedly ended, but the Vietnamese appear to be taking no chances. In 1979, I told my parents that I want to join the army to be a man that was alive because my boyfriend was killed in the war and that was that was only hope for me nobody to do the surgery for me in the army hospital maybe I can find a way find a chance to do the surgery 1982, and one day I bought a magazine, and I saw an article that wrote by Rong Fang Fu, professor of Beijing Medical College, and he talked about the homosexual. I wrote a letter to him. I said, I'm not a gay. I want to change my gender. I told him my situation was very dangerous. I was a boy but I dressed like a girl to work in the factory. I used the restroom and shower room with girls. If someone find out, I'd probably get a death penalty from the government. I met him in Beijing 
and the first meet, he already bring a doctor, Da Mei Wang, professor. They took me to Beijing, the third hospital. When I go see my doctor, and the doctor told me, never, never had one transgender in China. So if I did surgery, I would be the, the first one. When my doctor sent the report to the health department, I think maybe two or three times all rejected because they say we don't have the law to do the surgery. So I have to do three things. The first thing, I have to see a mental doctor. And the second one, I have to get my workplace permission. So the third one, I have to have my parents sign the document. Because that time, I was not even 21. One day, my uncle called the CEO, China's health department, told him about my situation and that I really need a big change. After two days, I received a call from my doctor and she told me good news that approved. I cried. The next day, I went to the hospital different doctors and try to scare me after surgery, your life no more than 40 years old. But I said no. Even I can live one month, I would do the surgery. The surgery cost about 100 US dollars. I met Bruce early 2005 on internet and we married. I moved in Parkhead, Sacramento in 2005 from Hong Kong. In China, when I grew up, talking about gender identity was not widely open. I've been through so many discriminations since I was young. That's why I'm afraid to talk about my gender to Bruce too. Last summer, I guess, June, she showed me a picture of uh, an army uniform and I thought, well, okay, uh, is that your father or is that your brother? And she had that sheepish look on her face and says, no, that's me. We were together all these years and uh, uh, 17 plus years of marriage. And then of course finding out, yeah, that was some of a minor shock, but I had to reflect on our years together. I was the last to fight out. I felt pretty good about that in a way because her friends, the Chinese community, they protected her. And uh, I, I think I appreciated that, you know. I admire her courage and I admire her determination. It's just everyone accepts her as who she is. Nobody could live like this, but she did. I don't think anybody would have the same experience, anything close to what she went through. Since I married this guy, and he changed my life, and we worked together, 
work for the charity and uh, helping those people who in need. Hi. Would you like one? A half of my life was really tough. When I see people in need, I always think about myself. I always get help from people. Now my life is good, so this is my turn to bring back to helping people in need. I want more people to understand the inner world of the transgender people, our society, to show more tolerance and compassion. That journey wasn't easy, having loved ones left behind. But the dawning of a brand new life was now on Sasha's mind. And if you want to learn more about Sasha, she just wrote a book about her life. We have more information on our website, and we're back right after this. All right, so I have been enjoying our mild summer weather, but that's all about to change this weekend, as Monica mentioned, the triple-digit heat returns. And our Rob Carlmark is asking, do you remember what that was like? For Northern California, the summer sun and heat has been on standby for now. Months of below-average temps have led to early cold storms, heavy snow, and drought-busting rain, and what some are calling the best spring ever. We had mild temperatures, often below average for months and months and months. You have to go back, way back to early September last year to remember what real heat feels like the last time we saw triple digits. I never get used to anything over 100. <laughs> We're hydrating with a lot of water, a lot of Gatorade, those types of things. Now it wasn't that long ago, but then again, it was. More than 290 days in a row, all below 100. Last September seemed like a different world. Yeah, I'm happy to be in the shade. I think we'll do a little swimming after this. Yeah, we'll get out of here before it gets too, too hot. The NBA season had not even started yet. One of the top movies was Top Gun Maverick, and gas was like five bucks a gallon. Okay, it still is, but you get the point. So remember your summer beat the heat skills, because those hot days are coming back. And it has been nice all across the West. Las Vegas just broke their longest streak of one of days below 100 degrees. All right, and coming up tomorrow on To The Point, we're following the reparations task force. The committee is expected to release its final recommendations. And tomorrow we'll introduce you to two families who have been trying to get what they believe is their family's land back. We'll show how this report could impact their efforts. As always, we love to hear from you. Let us know what's going on in your world. You can always send me an email. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, it's Alex. Just wanted to say thank you so much for watching. I really love hearing from everyone, and I hope that you'll stay in touch. Reach out to me on Facebook at Alex Bell TV, or you can email me at to the point at abc10.com, or you can even send me a text message at 916-321-3310. Flatland is brought to you in part through the generous support of AARP, the Health Forward Foundation, and RSM. Hi, I'm Dee Rashawn Gilmore, and welcome to Flatland in Focus. For this episode, we'll be talking about what reparations are and what they could look like here in Kansas City.
The idea of paying reparations to black Americans for the harms caused by slavery in the U.S. has been a hotly debated topic even before the practice even ended. It's a complicated issue and one that brings with it many tough questions that advocates have been working to address for many years. The city of Kansas City has recently joined that conversation by appointing a reparations commission to begin studying the harms caused not just by slavery, but by the history of racial discrimination up until the present and how the city has participated in that discrimination. Kansas City is one of 11 communities across the nation that have decided to commit to this effort. We wanted to start our program tonight by sharing a portion of the independent lens film, The Big Payback, which follows Evanston, Illinois, as it becomes the first city in the country to approve a reparations initiative. The city of Evanston now has pledged to pay out $10 million over the next 10 years. This is the first attempt at a publicly funded reparations program in U.S. history. So now it's up to Evanston to decide how and to whom the money will be distributed. It's been nonstop more calls and emails than the last few days than I probably had in the last couple of years, really. <laughs> You'll be hearing from me shortly on the few emails and texts, and then I'll see you at 530. Okay, thank you. Awesome. No problem. Learning that local government is most responsive and we're more nimble and we can make impact quicker than federal government and thinking this is a local matter. And I pushed it relentlessly. I was very, um, very stern in wanting it to happen in this calendar year, being the 400th year of black resilience. That was important to me. So I was not willing to compromise on any other format to get to this uh, victory. Time is of the essence. So with that said, let's just do the work at this point. Solutions only, hashtag. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for being here. Um, we are here today because we have a lot of work to do. We've done something really historic and um, we have an opportunity to actually make tremendous impact in our community and be looked to as a model of what's possible in localities across the nation. Via Evanston's budget, there is a reparation fund line item. That's really exciting. <laughs> yeah. The question is, what makes reparations reparations? Certainly, the whole issue of enslavement is what people tend to think about, but it is also for Jim Crow policies and racially exclusionary policies, policies that provided benefits for white people that we didn't get, that in fact helped to develop white communities to the underdevelopment of black communities. I want us to forever remember that there is no amount of money that they can pay us for what our people have endured. Mm -hmm. The notion that comes out of our committee, ancestral wisdom, about justice, not charity. And that's the distinction we're looking for in terms of public policy and what we're talking about when we talk about reparatory justice. When you use the term reparations in this context, a whole slew of categories, redlining, apartheid, which was Jim Crow segregation, slavery, these were what were considered crimes against humanity. And how do you return the dignity back to a people whose dignity was eroded as a result of the crimes that were committed? Well, we're going to go down to Fleetwood, Jordan, and we're going to fill out an application okay. for the housing restoration program for the first phase in uh, reparations for blacks in Evanston, and uh, hopefully get some compensation for my mom. 
Carmen to help you right over here. Oh. Hi. Hi. Do you have any documentation with you? Yeah, she got the closing and uh, got the trustee. Do you have your driver's license with you? I do. Okay, I'll take this to have an obituary okay. that has my mother's name listed in it. So dad was here in 1947, his Evanston senior year in high school. Okay. Yearbook. And there he is. Okay. So it shows that he was a graduate of Foster School and Evanston Township High School. And you are all set. Good luck. Well, thank you much. You're a You're scholar welcome. and a saint. No problem. Yes. Submitting, submitting. ready to receive about 50 leaders that have been working on local reparation initiatives in their communities. Hey, Tina. Has anyone showed up? Oh, wow. Great. The value of Evanston and the work of Robin Ruth Simmons is, is one of those turning points. Because there is this pent-up yearning for a concrete example that it can be done. Symbolically, Evanston woke up the world. So everyone, municipalities, universities, I mean, is looking to Evanston. And the hope is that what we'll end up doing is creating a national network of groups. This conference will and should go down in history as the Evanston Conference. It is a distinct honor to be representing the Caracom Reparations Commission at this historical event. I bring you greetings from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, I am with World One Development in Tulsa, Oklahoma, home of Black Wall Street. I'm from Los Angeles. Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm from Philadelphia. Omaha, Nebraska. When I started this work, I simply was trying to repair some of the injury that had been done in my own community. I had no idea how big this whole local reparations movement would get. I'm Mayor Michael B. Hancock of Denver, Colorado. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a founding member of the Kansas City chapter of the National Black United Front. In 2020, we talked about reparations, but we didn't know how to go by doing it. But one day, I was looking at TV. And I saw this bad sister out of Everson, Illinois. <laughs> she inspired me. I said, if they can do it in Everson, Illinois, why can't we do it in Detroit? We're 85% black. For me, this is the most important thing that we as a people should be focusing on in this moment. Like, this is our shot to address all the disparities in, in, in one, you know, one container. This country says that it values liberty and justice for all and equity and inclusion and freedom. So San Francisco has a population of over... That's not been the reality of black America. 6% of the population is African American. Recognizing the legal challenges that we know are coming up, we still need to be about the task of beginning to create a new narrative and a new legal framework. I realize that now I'm a part of a movement, a national movement, 
one that has great momentum to finally grapple with the injury inflicted by slavery and the deep-seated racism that we endure today. Okay, we're back in the studio for the discussion portion of today's program, and I'd like to welcome to the table Mickey Dean, founder of Casey Reparations Coalition, Esther Holzendorf, Executive Director of Consolidated Social Services, Asia Morris, CEO of the Green Line Initiative, and Professor Jason Glenn from the Department of History and Philosophy of Medicine at University of Kansas Medical Center. As with many issues on this show, this topic is huge, and we can only cover so much of it on tonight's program. However, we've done our best to provide many ways to learn more at flatlandshow.org. You can watch the town hall event hosted by Nick Haynes in American Public Square, as well as read our lead report on the topic from Mary Sanchez. We are also hosting a Flatland follow-up on Instagram, which invites our audience to join the conversation and ask questions of our guests directly. And so with that, I want to jump right into this subject, and I'll, I'll throw out a question for everybody. What are reparations, and what aren't they? Asia. Let's just say repayment for past injustices, and there are different types of reparations. It can be based on lineage, or it can be based on harm directly done to you. Okay, fair enough. What say you, Professor Glenn? I would just broaden that a little bit and talk about the existing, current systemic racism, uh, the politics of the undeserving poor that continue to plague our nation and are the underpinnings of every political decision that we make. And so when we talk about reparations, it's not just about things that have happened in the past. They're about legacies that continue to impact and oppress black communities to this day. Well, the root word is repair. And so basically when we talk about reparations, we're talking about repairing the damage uh, that's been done to a people. In our case, we're talking about uh, black people uh, for all of the suffering that we've done. And as everybody has said, not only just for this child slavery, but also for all of the vestiges of slavery. Uh, also, it includes uh, guarantees of cessation. That means that whatever policies that have been in place that have caused uh, the, the, the oppression of black people, all of that has to be ceased. So we're talking about policy change as well as compensation. Uh, what's not reparations basically uh, is normal public policy. Going by normal policy, it could take over 200 years for the wealth gap between black and white uh, to, to equalize, and, and most of us don't have 200 years. Uh, so normal policy will not get us there. There has to be some massive intervention. And the only intervention that, that we know of that can do that is reparations. Okay, so let's talk about then what the difference is, now that we understand what reparations are and are not. What's the difference between lineage and harm-based reparations? Because I think those are two different things. I think a lot of people, when they think of lineage-based reparations, they're thinking that there was a past harm 200 years ago that ended 200 years ago. They're not thinking of systemic racism in the ways that it has continued long after the Emancipation Proclamation. And you have to take that in. This is what Mr. Dean was talking about a second ago when he was talking about the continued policies that have reverberated from that history. So that history is still with us. We are still living it. It's almost as if what Professor Glenn is saying, Asia, is that there are still roots, vestiges of the harm that was caused that are still very much alive and well today. But I'm not sure a lot of people actually see it that way. Do you find that to be true? Yes, absolutely. Uh, for instance, I focus on home ownership in my professional career. 
Um, what I do with the Green Line Initiative is turn renters into homeowners using as unbiased as a system as possible because, for instance, credit scores are inherently racist. It uses historical data, which is racist, and artificial, artificial information, which has racial biases as well. And so we use more realistic underwriting terms to make sure that our community is able to afford a home because homeownership is one of the single largest ways to create generational wealth. Has the understanding from the public gotten better or worse? Is it more, uh, are people more receptive now? Because there's some data that suggests that maybe only 28% of folk feel like it is, is justified. And there are the, most people are opposed to it, like a cash payment. I think reparations is something that um, some people are never going to agree with. And I think we just have to face that. In general or for black folk? I think uh, probably in general. The residual effects of what happened to a people still exist. Because I have to tell my grandsons how to act and how not to act. If they're driving a car and they get pulled over by the police, keep your hands out to where they can be seen and all of that, okay? Uh, we're the only people that have to do the stuff that we have to do just to survive. The issue with the uh, lineage versus harm base, the reason that's important is because uh, all of these commissions, and, and this is being played out in California right now, they're going to have to determine eligibility. And, and this comes up when, it, when, when the issue becomes who's eligible for reparations. And so that's why, and unfortunately, it's a real um, divisive uh, element in our reparations movement right now, people who say that it should only be those who can trace their lineage back to slavery. Others who say, uh, like I think what I've been hearing today is that the damages from, from slavery didn't end after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. So that's why that's an important question. It's not just a theoretical question, but that's something that we're going to have to face in Kansas City when we start talking about eligibility. The other thing I want to go back to is the changes that we see today with regard to reparations. Uh, I'm a member of the National Black United Front. We were founded in 1980, and one of our principles of unity was our support for black reparations. So, and I can tell you that that when we would talk about reparations to people just 10 years ago, mm. uh, you know, people would, would 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 sort of give you the side eye. They would say, "Yeah, maybe so, but it'll never happen." You know, uh, and what we're seeing now, uh, particularly with what happened in Evanston, where they actually uh, have a somewhat successful reparations program, we see. Uh, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, theological groups, like like uh, Georgetown, for example, they they recognize that it was founded using slave labor, uh, and so now they are trying to to look for descendants of those people to pay reparations. There are some others. I think the Presbyterians are doing something similar. Uh, so what we're seeing, we're seeing cracks uh, in 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 the wall, and and I think now people really believe that this is something that can happen. Uh, it, it's still a tough struggle. Well, it raises a question for me, Jason Glenn, about when we talk about these vestiges and changing of attitudes over time, it would be impossible. Asia mentioned housing, of course, and of course there's a tremendous, very bad legacy around that. But there's also another very difficult legacy, and it revolves around health care. You are at a university that's got a major hospital system, and I'm sure you've studied this a lot in your work. What are you seeing, or how is this issue impacting your work? Let me answer that and come around. Sure. Um, you know, when we talk about policies that are still active today, property tax-based school funding for K through 12, that's one of the ways that 
public schools are kept fundamentally unequal, yeah. right? When we talk about policing and criminal justice policies, for instance, the war on drugs, which was a policy directly designed to massively incarcerate black people, right? When we talk about redlining, Asia mentioned greenlining, this is trying to repair, right, the legacies of redlining, a federal policy designed not to enable black people to get mortgages for owning homes and to keep black people out of certain neighborhoods, right? That legacy of redlining, also the legacy of racial covenants in mortgages, which was pioneered by Kansas City's own J.C. Nichols, right, in the creation of the Country Club District. All of these things, um, it even comes down to why we don't have universal health care in the United States. When we look at all affluent countries across the world, they have universal health care because they have a politics of solidarity. And we don't have it here because we have this politics of the undeserving poor, which is code for how do we punish lazy black people and make sure they don't get something that they don't deserve. Okay, so we're, 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 are the issues. But we're seeing this in, 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 in housing, mm-hmm. uh, health care, mm-hmm. and that's also in, in education. Education is something that uh, we, we hold near and dear to our hearts. Okay. Uh, I'm from the era when we went to segregated schools. Uh, I'm from Oklahoma. There was no school in Oklahoma that I could go to to become a nurse. That's how I ended up in Kansas City. My grandparents raised me. But when my grandparents got old and needed me, I wasn't in Oklahoma. I was in Kansas City because I got married, started a family. I lived here. It broke up families. Trying to get a decent education, to get a decent job, to live a decent life, I had to leave my family, leave my home. So education to me, it should be affordable. It should be easily accessible. Why did I have to pass by three or four schools to go to the Tucson Louverton School in McAllister, Oklahoma? Because that's the only school we could go to. Our goal is not to editorialize on this show. We want to hear from, from you, the experts, and get real first-person accounts from individuals who, are, who have lived experience. But it does make me think, if I were a viewer watching this show, and perhaps I am a non-black person, I don't have the context or the lived experience that any of you have, if you can imagine for a moment, Mickey, what would you say to me if I asked, what does that have to do with me? I didn't own slaves. My grandpappy, my grandpappy's grandpappy didn't own slaves. I'm a nice guy. Uh, I showed up at the Black Lives Matter march. Why am I paying for this? I think they, they really have to understand that for 400 years in this country, white people have had advantages that black people have not had. It's, it started all the way going back to, you can go back to the Homestead Act, uh, which was in 1862, where 160 acres were given to, to white families as they wanted to move native people off the land. Uh, black people didn't get that. You can go back to the New Deal, most of the New Deal policies. Uh, for example, the GI Bill, I think uh, that was that was what really uh, gave a lot of white families the opportunity to create wealth uh, because they, they were able to get uh, loans to buy homes. They were able to get loans to go to college. I think 2% of black veterans got that. The Social Security Act. Uh, was was deliberately designed to to uh, it, to not cover uh, agricultural workers and domestic, which was 80% of the labor force of black people in the South. So I think I think what white people understand is that maybe they didn't own slaves, and, and of course we're not slaves. But but what what the, the reason that the situation exists today is because of as everybody's been saying those vestiges of slavery. As long as you have one large segment of society that's oppressed. 
it, it negatively affects the whole of society. White people don't understand that by raising up the status of black people, it helps the entire country. Do you think that most people understand that there's a difference between personal profit and accrued benefit? In other words, maybe you didn't personally profit from this thing, but you are the beneficiaries. That's why I hear all of you all collectively saying, especially you, Mickey, that there's a crude benefit that has come to you. Do you think most people understand that? And if they don't, how do we get them? How do you and your work get them to understand that? Like, it's, it's a concept that you can understand. Most people do not, and a vast majority of them choose not to, because that would be to recognize their privilege. Um, this boils down to white, the white, white privilege. You have the New Deal and everything that Mickey listed that benefited white families. Reparations would repair black, the black community and get them on par. Racial equity is the way, as Mickey said, to uplift the entire community. So you can educate until you're blue in the face, I found, but some people will, would, are going to remain willfully ignorant. Um, for those that you can change, I do believe it's worth the effort because our allies are the ones with the resources. Mm. Our allies are in the majority and making the policies. Our allies will be the ones that vote on the suggestions that we make on the reparations committee, from the reparations commission. And so by strengthening the people, the network that you have outside of your immediate group that's fighting for reparations, reparations now, by the way, um, you need to get your allies, your sponsors, and your champions. And I think that we are doing that and can further, can cast a wider net if we further educate on the difference between. How can we get basic everyday Americans to understand the idea, right, that they are inheritors of this privilege, right? Yes. We live in stolen, in a stolen house built with stolen enslaved labor. It is the displacement and genocide of Native Americans and the enslavement of black people that made the conditions that make the United States possible. And without that, none of us are here. Mm -hmm. And we have never grappled with that as a nation. What we've done is continue to enact policies that push that issue under the rug. Mass incarceration is one of those policies. It is a direct outgrowth of slavery. What we started doing directly after the Emancipation Proclamation was we had the slave convict lease system laws, ways to criminalize black people. To slavery put by prison. another name. Slavery by another name, right? And this, just go ahead and read the 13th Amendment, that slavery was not outlawed in the United States. The terms were only changed, mm -hmm. where you were legally enslavable if you were duly convicted as a crime. And we used that clause to enslave thousands upon thousands of black people directly after the Emancipation Proclamation, and it grew into millions upon millions of black people. And that continues to this day. There are some states, particularly southern states, have always had at least 50% of their population has been black people. And that's always been the case. The question that I have for you, Mickey, is what could reparations on a citywide level actually look like in Kansas City? Well, I think, I think the major benefit and one of the, one of the outcomes that we'll be looking for is uh, uh, what we're doing closing the wealth gap. This is a tremendous wealth gap between black and white in Kansas City. That wealth gap 
really causes a lot of the other problems that we have, uh, you know, the, the, the crime in the community, uh, the lack of proper education. So one of the things that I'll be looking for is to see whether the proposals that come forward from the commission uh, play a role in closing that wealth gap. So that's one of the main things. And I think it just comes down to people taking a look at the situation, how it came to be the way it is, and just admit to the wrongdoing. Just admit it was wrong. I think that's the starting point for the United States of America, Kansas City. Just admit it was wrong. Jason Glenn, what do you say? If and when the American empire comes to an end, the cause of death written on the death certificate will be systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Systemic racism is getting in the way of us solving all the major challenges mm -hmm. before us, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about housing, whether we're talking about health care. If we don't tackle this as a nation, it's all over. Asia, you've heard from your co-panelists, and, and, and I know you're not here speaking for the commission, and you don't have to, but just personally, either for yourself or for the Green Line Initiative, what, what do you feel would be the collective good, or what might that look like in Kansas City? For me, well, first, I'd like to recognize and acknowledge I'm sitting at this table with three, four greats, including yourself. Well, you, um, and I just feel incredibly honored and privileged for that. But for me, what it would look like for me personally, not as a reparations commissioner, everyone, um, but what that looks like for me is uplifting those who have the least, at the very least, the policies, the requests should work towards Closing the racial wealth gap, as Mickey said, but empowering those who are who have the least because you get the greatest gain from it. Well, that's where we wrap up today's conversation for this episode of Flatland in Focus. Uh, you've been listening to Mickey Dean, founder of Casey Reparations Coalition, Esther Holzendorf, executive director of Consolidated Social Services, Asia Morris, CEO of the Green Line Initiative, and Jason Glenn, associate professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Medicine at the University of Kansas Medical Center. You can find so much more on this topic about reparations at our website, Flatland Show org and on our Instagram for the Flatland follow-up airing directly after this show. This has been Flatland in Focus. I'm D. Rashawn Gilmore, and as always, thank you for the pleasure of your time. Flatland is brought to you in part through the generous support of AARP, the Health Forward Foundation, and RSM. I'm here with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a creator of the New York Times Magazine's landmark 1619 project. Uh, her work chronicles the history of slavery in America and examines the many aspects of contemporary life in the United States, from the racial wealth gap to housing discrimination, uh, and how they're all connected to the legacy of America's original sin. Uh, her latest article for the New York Times, What is Owed? It is Time for Reparations. It makes the case that America must pay its debts to the descendants of enslaved people. Uh, Nicole, I am so delighted to have you uh, with us today. I hope you are, I hope you can please come in, uh, wherever you are, you're in, you're in New York City, Bedford-Stuyvesant, uh, welcome. Thank you so much. I, I really, I, your, your writing blows me away. I, I thought that uh, your cover story for the New York Times Magazine last week was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. I recommend everybody read it. Uh, and also your other work uh, has been uh, just illuminating. That's all I can say. So I just uh, what I want you to do, uh, 
Uh, and this is unusual because usually there's a lot of Q&A. And I just want you to talk. I want you to tell us uh, <laughs> just about uh, your most let, – maybe let's start with your most recent article on what is owed. It's time for reparations. Uh, and uh, take us through that argument, please. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, as I told you, when you reached out to me on Twitter, I've been an admirer of, of your work and your voice. Uh, it really has a moral force that I think we need in this country. So um, just really honored to be on. So the, the piece that I wrote for the Sunday magazine uh, is called What is Owed? And um, I've been thinking about and, and researching for a reparations piece that was going to be part of the 1619 project, but I wasn't ready to write it yet. Uh, however, as George Floyd's uh, death occurred and these protests started breaking out all over the country, and I saw what felt really different this time, um, how sustained the protests have been, that the protests were occurring in all 50 states, that uh, the protesters were multiracial and multigenerational, and even in places that have a very tawdry racial history like Vidor, Texas, uh, they were doing Black Lives Matter protests. At the same time, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we know the entire country is suffering economically, but that Black Americans, because of the history of this country, suffer so much worse. So all I kept thinking was, if this moment is really different, if if this is if, if we're kind of at the precipice of transformational change, we can't just be asking that police don't kill citizens in the street without uh, consequence. We have to be asking for something much bigger, which is to finally address um, the really um, glaring and crippling economic poverty that black Americans live in. And, and, and I'm talking about a poverty of wealth, regardless of the income that black people have. So that's why I decided to write this piece to really say, we need to be thinking much, much bigger than police reforms. Police reforms are important, but what makes black life so hard is actually that black people own uh, 10 cent of wealth for every $1 of wealth that white Americans have. And that that's really what makes your life hard in this country. Um, and so this is the time to at least consider fixing it. Well, that 10 to 1 ratio you just mentioned hasn't changed uh, in years. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's not, I mean, we a, a lot of white people like to think that uh, black people are getting ahead. There's a kind of, and you refer to it in your work, a kind of uh, uh, a, a mythology uh, that in fact things are getting better when they're not getting better and they haven't got better for many, many years. Uh, how do you, how do we overcome that mythology? How do we overcome that almost uh, avoidance mechanism uh, that a lot of white people carry around uh, thinking that black people are doing better and better? Yeah, so I think it's caused by a couple of things. Um, so First, let me just start with the data. What the data show are that black Americans, the income gap between white Americans and black Americans is unchanged over the last 70 years. So this is before Dr. King's March on Washington. Uh, we have not seen any progress on closing the income gap, but much more important than income is wealth. And the wealth gap also is unchanged for the last 70 years. So before the civil rights movement, uh, the wealth gap is the same. 
The difference, of course, between income and wealth is income is your paycheck. That's what most of us use to pay our bills. But wealth are your assets minus your debt. And wealth is what allows you to weather financial storms. If you lose a job, you can still pay your mortgage every month. It's what allows you to put a down payment on a house or send your kids to school. And we've seen a significant number of black Americans move into uh, positions with higher incomes. So I think a lot of the reason that so many white Americans kind of have this uh, denial about the depth of uh, wealth poverty is they have black coworkers and they assume those black coworkers are making the same amount of money that they have. And that is uh, progress. But the difference is their black coworkers have almost no wealth. So even though they have the same salaries, they don't have the same amount of wealth, which means they are not able to actually um, have financial security or make the type of investments in home ownership and college that uh, white Americans with the same income are making. So that's part of it. The other part of it, though, is um, we have long had a society where white Americans really just want to be done with the past. Uh, once we had the bloody civil rights movement and uh, ended discrimination in the law, white Americans kind of want to believe, well, that was it. That was our only obligation. Everyone's equal now, and we don't have to actually do anything to make up for 350 years of, of legal discrimination. Um, but the systems of slavery and of uh, Jim Crow were systems of economic exploitation, uh, first and foremost. They were designed to extract wealth from black labor and to keep black people from keeping that wealth for themselves. So we have not dealt with uh, centuries-long plundering of black wealth that leaves black people in the position that we are today. White people don't want to feel guilty. And um, I think I try to make very clear in my essay that this is not about feeling guilty for something that you didn't do, but understanding that we all inherit this legacy and this legacy um, has a lasting effect on black Americans. And we do have an obligation to address it without having to take on uh, individual and personal guilt. And that history is critical. I mean, in your writing, uh, and one thing that I find so impressive is your weaving of history into the present. Uh, and that weaving of history into the present is critically important for understanding why, even though your coworker, your black coworker, if you're white, uh, can have the same income as you may be, uh, still doesn't have the wealth you do uh, because wealth is tied to history. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I mean, in terms of your research yeah. and your writing, how does current wealth depend upon not only your own history, but your parents and grandparents and maybe even your great-grandparents' history? Absolutely. So history is, is a really linchpin of my work because I, I don't think that as Americans we can understand our society and particularly uh, racial disparities and um, the racial experience if we don't understand the history of how we got here, that all of this is created. Uh, so in this piece, I really uh, worked hard to answer all of those questions that I get from white Americans about why this is necessary and why there is such a gap. And so much of it is because of our long history of specifically uh, first allowing chattel slavery against black Americans and then legalized discrimination against black Americans. So when we think about wealth, wealth uh, tends to be accumulated over time. It tends to be handed down from generation to generation and then built upon with each generation. 
very few Americans have earned all of their wealth on their own. They might get, you know, a $5,000 inheritance or a family member passes down a house or some property or, you know, their parents help uh, pay for their college. So that wealth is uh, accumulated, accumulated. But black Americans have never had a real opportunity to accumulate that wealth. So when we understand that under uh, slavery, 250 years, and we should just make clear that uh, we had slavery in this country longer than we have not had slavery, which is just a fact. We um, Slavery ended 155 years ago, but it was practiced for 250 years. So that's 250 years of black people not being able to accumulate any wealth, any property. It was illegal. Legal black people uh, who were enslaved to own property, anything that they owned actually belonged to the uh, enslaver. It was illegal for black people to make wills and to have heirs. Uh, so when black people gain their freedom at emancipation, they are, as historian Carrie Lee Merritt says, the only group of people in the history of our country who, as a race, started off with zero capital. Uh, we come into freedom without owning anything, without banks, without money, without clothes, without um, food without property. And that means that we were already very far behind. Um, and of course, it is immediately after slavery that black people first start pressing for reparations. They're saying, we need some land. We need um, something to help us be able to become financially independent to support ourselves. Um, the federal government very briefly uh, experimented with reparations, uh, the 40 acres, we all heard of 40 acres and a mule. It was actually just 40 acres. There was never a mule. And small numbers of black formerly enslaved people were able to get that 40 acres uh, of former Confederate land and start working on it. But then Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and uh, immediately the 40 acres was repealed and that land was returned to the Confederates. So the federal government decides enslaved people were not worthy of um, receiving any type of land or reparations. But at that same time, it passes the Homestead Act. And the Homestead Act gives away hundreds of millions of acres of land to white Americans and also uh, was used to entice white immigrants to come to the United States. Fully 10% of all the land in America was given out under the Homestead Act. And today, I think about 46 million white Americans can trace uh, their legacy directly to this free land that the government was giving white people while denying any type of land to the formerly enslaved. Um, you follow that period up then with 100 years of racial apartheid where discrimination against the descendants of the enslaved was legal in every aspect of law was also a period of great racial terrorism to try to keep black people in exploitable labor force. We, many of us have heard about Tulsa in, um, this year, where one of the wealthiest black business districts in the country was, was burned down. But that happened all over the country. Black businesses were destroyed. Black land was destroyed. Uh, black people were not allowed to work certain jobs that would give us uh, a financial foothold. So what that meant is that by the time you got to my parents' generation, you had white Americans who, because of programs like uh, the New Deal, were able to really build um, themselves into a middle class with a, a decent amount of wealth and stability, and black Americans had been generationally deprived of that same thing. Uh, so we're living with that legacy right now. I can tell you um, nearly every 
black person I know who has the same education I have, who has the same type of job I have, uh, does not have wealth. And so they are not able to buy into the same neighborhoods as their white colleagues or uh, have the same uh, cushion. That's how we got here. But most of us never learned that history. And because we don't learn that history, I think that's why when you poll Americans on reparations, uh, something like 70% or higher of Americans say that they are opposed to them because we really don't understand that lasting impact and legacy uh, and the singularity of the black experience that other groups face discrimination, but no group uh, has ex faced the, the continuous dragnet of exploitation and discrimination that black Americans have. And that continuous dragnet of exploitation and discrimination, Nicole, uh, really does work itself right up beyond the Civil Rights Act and the Voting yes. Rights Act. I mean, what you point out is that redlining in various subtle forms in terms of bank lending or not lending to black people, uh, all sorts of wealth uh, transfers that are not actually permitted or have been uh, made much more difficult for black people, uh, and even college uh, and access to college. So uh, you, you, in other words, this history doesn't stop. It's not That's as right. if you have uh, slavery and then you have a brief 12 years of reconstruction uh, and then you've got basically a reaction uh, that does not end at any particular time. It's living right up to the present day. Uh, is that a fair interpretation of what you've been writing about? Absolutely. So as you know, in the piece, What is Old, I, I try to make that very clear that when we pass these civil rights laws in the 1960s, we're not going back and correcting the harm that was done. Uh, we're not necessarily integrating schools. We're not making up for the theft of black people's education all those decades. Uh, we're not um, uh, making new housing values to make up for the fact that Black communities were redlined and so had their housing values artificially inflated while white communities had their housing values artificially inflated. We didn't equalize those values uh, when the Fair Housing Act was passed. Uh, we passed uh, laws against employment discrimination, but we didn't make up for you know, all of the promotions black people could not get because of their race, all of the jobs black people couldn't work because of their race. And we don't really enforce uh, aggressively most of those fair housing, uh, and civil rights laws now. So even though we had a 250-year um, legacy of legal discrimination, uh, excuse me, a 350-year legacy of legal discrimination, for the last 50 years where we have gotten rid of discrimination in the law, we still have pervasive discrimination against black Americans. We know that black Americans face millions of incidents of housing discrimination every year. Under the Obama administration, we saw record settlements with banks for continuing to charge uh, black people with the same credit worthiness of white people a much higher interest rate. Uh, we know that um, black children are still the most segregated group of school children in the country. We know that black people face pervasive uh, discrimination in employment. So all of the things that we're told that black people need to do in order to um, make up for their wealth gap don't really work out for black folks. Uh, when black people buy a home, if it's in a black neighborhood, those homes are valued less. Uh, we know that a black person with a college degree is just as likely to be unemployed as a white person with a high school degree and actually has less 
less wealth than a white person with a high school degree. So not only do we have a legacy of discrimination and disadvantage, but black Americans still face ongoing discrimination and disadvantage. Now, when we looked at um, unemployment right now, more than half of all working uh, black adults are unemployed uh, because of COVID-19. But even in the best of times, as you well know, black Americans have doubled the unemployment rate of white Americans, no matter how good the economy is and no matter and, what their educational levels. And even now in the pandemic, when you have black people working, a disproportionate number of them are so-called essential workers who are taking, in many respects, their lives into their own hands and being subjected to great risk of this disease. Uh, but so here we are, all right? We, we, we're now up to the present time. Uh, we have demonstrations around the world. It's not just around the United States, yes. around the world. Uh, and we also have this issue of police violence. Uh, you wrote something uh, that, I, that struck me uh, obviously very powerfully. You said that at least 6,500 black people were lynched from the end of the Civil War to 1950, which is an average of two a week for 90 years. And then fast forward, nearly five black people have been killed a week by the police since 2015. Uh, now, you don't actually make the direct connection, but it's easy to see a connection there in terms of uh, what was not quite state-sanctioned or state-sanctioned lynching and the kind of state-sanctioned executions that we've been seeing in recent years. Uh, but at least we are now seeing protests. Uh, but will the protests, in your view, uh, translate into fundamental change, Nicole. I'm, I, this is something that you have spent a great deal of time uh, thinking about and writing about. Are we at an inflection point finally, looking back on this extraordinarily long, shameful, bitter, violent history, can we say, can anybody say, well, the chances are much better now than they've ever been before? So I think that that's largely going to depend on uh, how willing people are to remain in the streets and how willing those of us, particularly in the media who have platforms, are to keep paying attention and shining a spotlight. Because as we know, uh, the attention on racial justice in this country is very fickle. The media's attention on racial injustice in this country is very fickle. Um, I'm not going to try to predict the future, but if you study history, as I say in my piece, it doesn't bode well for transformative change. However, um, none of us would have expected that we would see this type of sustained protest. Um, we've had, as I said, there's been five deaths, an average of five deaths of black people by police um, every week for the last five years, and yet we haven't seen this type of, of sustained protest. So what I'm worried about, though, is we already see what's happening in Congress. Uh, it doesn't seem like the Republicans are willing to really put forth or support a bill that is going to have a real effect on police violence. Um, the, the media is not covering these protests like they used to, um, and that concerns me. At the same time, in New York City, uh, the protests here have been relentless. Uh, we have had uh, more than a month straight uh, protests, and they are camped out in front of the uh, governor, or excuse me, the mayor's mansion, and really demanding change. Um, and we saw that there 
are going to be significant cuts in the policing budget uh, from the mayor's office and, and from the city council because of that. So if we are, if this moment is going to be truly transformative, it's going to largely depend on how willing white Americans are to make it so. Uh, black people are 13% minority in this country, and we have to have a significant number of, of white Americans who are uh, going to be unrelenting in their support and agitation, and in the media, who are not just going to simply move on to the next story. Um, because as you know, uh, politicians respond to pressure, and they respond to what they think significant numbers of their constituents are demanding. And without that pressure, I think we're going to have um, a story that 10 years from now will be written about like so many other periods in our history where there were uh, these sparks, but they never ended up uh, transforming the system. Uh, well, something that gives me a little bit of hope, and I share your worry and your skepticism given the history, uh, but something that gives me a little bit of hope is that one big difference with these protests and these demonstrations is that they are biracial. Uh, there are a lot of white people involved. There are a lot of white people on the street. Young people, and I teach a lot of young people, uh, have a very different attitude in general uh, toward race and toward racism than I remember the young people I taught 40 years ago, or I remember the people who I was young with uh, 50 and 60 years ago. Uh, so maybe there is a chance for change the other thing I wanted to throw in the hopper, uh, Nicole, is Donald Trump uh, and mm -hmm. the Republicans and the Republican Party that has become basically a cult of Trump. And Trump's use of racism uh, is, it looks like, and I hope I'm, uh, I'm, I'm accurate, it looks like it is failing. It's look, look, it looks like it's boomeranging on him. And that might also be a positive thing. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely have felt heartened. I mean, part of what makes this moment feel so different is, and I would say uh, the protests aren't biracial, they're multiracial. Uh, you're seeing Asian Americans, Latino Americans, white Americans, and black Americans all taking to the streets to say that black lives matter. Um, and, and that is really what makes this moment different. And also what makes it different is we are in the middle of a pandemic that not only is devastating, um, uh, disproportionately devastating black people in terms of health, but all, you know, millions of Americans are feeling uh, the financial rug has been snatched from underneath them. And I think it has given an empathy that you can uh, be struggling to pay your bills, struggling to make your mortgage, and it doesn't have anything to do with your own personal responsibility. And, and I think that has allowed uh, many white Americans to feel an empathy with uh, black Americans uh, and the financial struggles of black Americans that they perhaps didn't have before. Um, and, and so I think when you have that combination of so many Americans living on the financial edge and so many Americans understanding that actually there's certain things we need our government to do for us as Americans, uh, and then uh, watching a black man literally lynched on national TV has, has set um, a fire in people that we couldn't have predicted. And absolutely, uh, who is in the White House is a big part of that. Uh, folks are willing to accept this argument of, of uh, economic anxiety, um, but at this point, it's a death pact. It's a death pact for white supremacy. We see someone 
who as he uh, gets more and more concerned about his own reelection, um, speaking more and more the very explicit language of racial animus and racism. And I think large numbers of Americans want to reject that and um, work towards an America uh, that would not elect a man like that into the White House. Well, in terms of working toward an America in the future, we have just a few minutes left. I want to go back to your article, uh, that cover story in the New York Times magazine, uh, What is Owed? It's Time for Reparations. Uh, you make the case that uh, reparations really are, there are kind of three areas that you pointed out. Uh, number one was genuine enforcement of civil rights laws and, and voting rights laws. Uh, the second was investments real investments in uh, communities of color uh, that are primarily still black communities, schools, healthcare, housing, and so forth. But then you also say, number three, individual cash payments to descendants of the enslaved. And I'd like you to just spend a couple of minutes helping us understand what that might mean and what you intended for it to mean. Sure. So the only way to close a wealth gap is by transferring wealth. We know that all of the other things we say that can close the wealth gap, the data and the research show that they simply won't work. Uh, black people going to college doesn't close the wealth gap. Black people getting married doesn't close the wealth gap. Black people purchasing homes won't close the wealth gap. So the only thing that can close the wealth gap is to provide restitution for the people who were never allowed to accumulate wealth. Now, I think we have to do all those other things. We have to invest in segregated communities. We have to enforce civil rights law. Or that wealth transfer is is probably not going to have the lasting impact that it needs to. But um, I think we really need to consider, like, we, we understand in American law the idea of financial restitution when someone harms you. Uh, people sue all of the time for um, negligence, for being harmed by different entities. And that's what um, is required here as well. I think what's much more important, um, two things I'd like to say, is that this is a societal debt. Just like we inherit uh, the glory of our country, we also inherit its wrongs. If you uh, want the uh, protections of the Constitution, even though you weren't alive back then and even though you didn't sign the Constitution, um, if you want those now, you also have to deal with the fact that we were a country built on slavery and um, we need to make right what was done. Um, the other thing is it's not good for our country to have this type of inequality. It's not good for our country to have a 13% permanent uh, underclass who cannot, um, you know, take advantage of the bounty of this country. So a reparations program would put money into the economy. Black Americans would do the same thing that white Americans do. They would use that money to start businesses, to send their children to college, to buy homes. This would be a, a, a dramatic infusion into our whole country. And the last thing, I know I said that was the last thing, but the last thing I'll say is, uh, I also support universal anti-poverty programs for all Americans. So I understand, you know, there are, there are people who are not black who say, well, I struggle financially too. I believe that we in this country have the wealth to do all of those things. We can have a livable wage. We can have universal health care. We can have a social safety net. Um, we can even have a universal basic income. And I'm supportive of all of those programs, but uh, reparations is about dealing with the singular harms that black Americans face and the singular wealth poverty that black Americans face. 
And I just hope that we can get to a point in this country where we understand that we do owe a debt and that that debt will actually benefit our whole society if we pay it. Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, I promised you a half hour. You've given us <laughs> a half hour very graciously. Uh, you pointed out, and I want to just close on this note, uh, that one of the most important aspects of whether this moment is going to be genuinely a turning point has to do with keeping people informed, keeping people active, making sure that the protests do lead to political change and overcoming one of the basic problems we have in this country, not just structural racism and systemic racism, but also a short attention span. Uh, yeah. And what you are doing in your writing and what we are trying to do on Inequality Media is to maintain and extend and enlarge that attention span. And so I want to just thank you for all you your work. I want to thank the New York Times for allowing you the space that it gives you. And I want to hope that you continue to do what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.